Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is the best little horror house in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made. According to our guest, at least, what a treat to talk with today's guest. He's one of the hosts of the Screamcast. He's a writer for the upcoming Blue Cave Man, a film historian. He's in charge of acquisitions and special feature production for Vinegar Syndrome. Welcome, Brad Henderson. How's it going, man? Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. And I definitely want to get into your work. But first, I want to hear about what your history with horror looks like. How did you get into it? Has it been a lifelong thing or something you came to later? Yeah, yeah. Uh, just real quick, just to backpedal. I help with acquisitions, not the head or in charge of acquisitions. My apologies. We have we have a good team at Vinegar Syndrome right. that I consider my family and brothers. We work together. But uh, yeah, so how I got into it in general, it's a long story. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, I got into horror with, I got into movies really just from my mother. You know, she was really big. I mean, she was big into horror. So my father worked, we owned a, a couple businesses. So he was out a lot, you know, like a rotor rooter business and like pest control and a couple other things. So he had like late nights and my mom really liked movies and she didn't really like watching them alone, I guess, because they did scare her at times. So she pulled me in when I was like three, you know, <laughs> I definitely know three is, is the youngest that I knew who Freddie was Wow, mainly because there, I have video documentation <laughs> of uh, October of 1988 and I was born in November of 84 um, so I, my parents, uh, bought me a Freddie mask, a hat and a glove, um, for Halloween, uh, that year. And in the video, I, I definitely know who Freddie is. I say the entire, you know, the little rock <laughs> that they say. So I definitely knew who Freddie was around that time. So that's essentially when I started watching that stuff. Yeah, wow. So mainly the mainstream titles, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, Child's Play. Child's Play is the very first movie that ever scared me, that gave me kind of nightmares. But everything else I just, I watched with her um, and they just developed the love from it from there, watching anything that I could, because uh, I then I got really into it, even when I was like eight or nine, then I really started wanting to go to the video store and pick out my own titles and, you know, remembered box art and stuff, what scared me, you know, obviously the, the covers were scarier uh, or me more memorable in, in, in sense of being scared. Because I remember like seeing like the Evil Dead cover and just thinking that's going to be a scary movie. And <laughs> but uh, yeah, just, just stuff like that in general. And then having a lot of video stores around to where, you know, I've told this story before is like growing up in Florida, we had a video hut and like this other mom and pop place that really, and we had like a grocery store called Albertsons. I don't know if they're like a, they were a global like chain, but we had an Albertsons here that had videos, you know, so at the grocery store. So my mom would go grocery shopping and then I would go look at the movies and we had like a movie gallery and like a couple other places. And then when we would go visit in Ohio in the Akron Canton area, they had video time there. Um, and video time just was a museum of tapes. I mean, they had everything that you can think of. Hell yeah. So we would spend summers and being that my parents moved to Florida, my dad sold all his businesses and they retired. Uh, my dad was, my dad is older. He's still alive. He is 91 
Wow. Now, so they, they, they moved here in, I would say, 1990. And then we would, being that they were retired, my mom's younger. There's a 25-year age difference between my mom and my dad. And uh, my mom basically retired too, because she helped run those businesses. Sure. So they just lived here in Florida. So when we would go visit during, my whole point is, is that during the summer, when we would go on a va- vacation, we would typically go to Ohio because that's where her, my mom's family lived and my dad's side. So we would just go for like two months, wow. drop everything and, and, and move and, and go to Ohio and just spend time there. Well, I would mainly stay with my grandmother and we, she loved movies too. She liked kind of more erotic thrillers. (laughs) I grew up on erotic thrillers, watching those with her, which was very uncomfortable. (laughs) Um, And then my grandfather, I would spend a lot of time, like I would spend months or I'm sorry, like weeks uh, in Pennsylvania. It was right next door with my grandfather and he watched prison and war movies. So I, and Westerns and I got that from there. So every, every place that I went to, and then my great grandmother loved show, show tunes. So when I stayed there, she would want to watch like My Fair Lady or West Side Story. So I had like all these different genres just thrown at me at once. So I never had a moment in my life where I was just focused on one thing. Yeah. I mean, horror is definitely like a big thing there, but I was just exposed to everything at a very young age. So I, you know, just watched whatever I could. That rules. Yeah, and that's, that's pretty much how it was. And then when we got a computer in like uh, 1996, baby, we got a compact, I think it was. With that computer, you know, at the time when you would buy a standard PC, you would get like multiple games and discs with it. I'm not that old, but apparently that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> so I'm only 36. But during that time, you know, when I was, you know, I was like 10, 12 years old when we would, you know, get get a computer or whatnot, there was this thing that came with it called uh, All Movie Guide. And it was basically IMDB, but on a disc. And that just opened an entire world. Uh, to Absolutely. Me, like, existed. Yeah. So I was able to look, you know, look for a lot of things, read about a lot of movies, make the connections between directors because they all had, you know, hyperlinks to where you could, you know, click on George Romero and then find out. And when I found out that Night of Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead was all him, I like had a panic attack. (laughs) I was like, you know, 10, 11 years old. I'm like, wait a second. Why didn't I put that together? So that was, you know, really, really exciting for me because I felt like I discovered that on my own, even though the computer's telling me I discovered (laughs) that on my own. And I was just amazed. And then learning that the person that made Nightmare on Elm Street made The Hills Have Eyes and realizing that, you know, Halloween was made by the same guy that my mom loves a movie called Starman. Um, A classic. yeah, that was it was wild, you know. So it's it's not as cool as it is now because it's just everywhere in your face, <laughs> you know. Directors' filmography, box sets, Winston, you know, you just have all this, you know, information and people talking about things that it's just too easy. It's it's not hard anymore, right. <laughs> you know. So it it felt special, but yeah. And then from there on, it was just I wanted to watch more and more and. When I basically 
rented everything in the video stores that I was interested in, you know, around that time I was 14, 15, 16 years old, and I wanted to watch more. And then the internet started happening. And then I had IMDb and then I got on to film forums and my mom took me to tape swaps when I was younger. You know, we'd go to Tampa, Orlando to these bootleg tape swaps. I got on online forums and there I met, you know, today's actually his birthday. I met Sage Stallone on there and Sage was a huge part of my life getting a lot of those titles, like super obscure stuff like German gore splatter movies and stuff like that. Wow. So he introduced me to Olaf Ettenbach at the time, which his stuff was really, really hard to find around here. I mean, it actually kind of still is. <laughs> yeah. And then, and they're just buying stuff off eBay. <laughs> that was, that was my kryptonite. It just, I, I was, I kept spent so much money on bootlegs on eBay. It was insane just because that was the only way to get things. I, I paid, I remember paying in probably like 2000, you know, like 99, 2000, whenever it came out, I bought a bootleg copy of verses on DVD for like 50 bucks. Wow. And that movie blew me away. You know, and I was only like 16 at the time or so. But yeah, I, you know, Biozombie, there's a movie called Junk, you know, and I, I got really into, you know, Japanese cinema around that time. Uh, Mike, uh, all those, all those like splatter people. Um, so that was, that was pretty special too. And then just, like I said, it just, it just, Every, every every year it just progressed to something different just because I wanted to know more about that genre and uh, stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. My grandfather was also into like the war movies kind of stuff. Uh, I remember the first movie, the first R-rated movie I ever tried to watch. I could not make it through. It was Black Hawk Down <laughs> and the violence in that really just was too much for me. And so the first one I ever made it through was actually The Matrix, but I digress. Um, and Vinegar Syndrome, which, as, as I said, you're part of the team over there, is a film restoration and distribution company. And you focus primarily on horror genre movies uh, at large. There's some erotica and stuff on there as well. And archival work is something that is a really big passion of mine as well. I think that, you know, I, I love stuff like Raw Force, but even something like that, once you've gotten to that point where you're getting someone like Cameron Mitchell in it, you know, that's that's a, a level above something like these really, really tiny little oddball movies. I recently got the homegrown horror set from Vinegar Syndrome and I watched them and had just an absolute blast. And part of the reason is because you never feel like there's someone going, oh, this is the best business decision. <laughs> it's always this is pure heart. And it it's so easy for a movie that, that you know, is made for two thousand bucks in a dream. It's so easy for them to vanish. But at Vinegar Syndrome, you guys are doing uh, the good work of not only saving it, but restoring it and making it accessible. So truly a cause near and dear to my heart. And I'm definitely curious to hear a little bit about what the process looks like, because, you know, I see people shouting titles that they want at you constantly. But where do you even start? How does something get picked as a candidate, especially because, you know, what makes the, the label so great is that you guys put out a lot of stuff that people don't even know that they want yet. Yeah, yeah. No, um, yeah, first and foremost, if we talk about, you know, anything with VS, of course, my my opinions and comments are my own. With VS, we're very small, you know, who who is behind the curtain there. And we're all very much the same as far as our upbringing and our love for cinema. So yeah, I mean, we do have titles 
constantly shouted at us and like, why aren't you doing this? Well, <laughs> there's various reasons why <laughs> pretty much anything that's shouted at us, we already know about it and we've tried or it's on our radar or we know kind of, you know, who it might be with, if it's possible, whatnot. So nothing, so hardly ever anything's new to us, I guess, per se. What that does help though, is that it makes us realize the fan base for it. So, you know, if we have a title that on our request list that you can do on our, on our, you know, recommend a title, you know, we do keep a tally of those. And so if we have movie A that has been requested, you know, a thousand times versus movie B that's been requested 50 times, we're going to push for title A first, you know? So, I mean, it's just kind of a, you know, assembly line of movies and, you know, we're, we're constantly, and we're also constantly experiencing new things. I watch new movies. I watch at least a new movie a day, you know, and if it's something cool, you know, and it's old shot on film, then if it's something that I think there could be an audience for, then it goes on the list. And our list is very, 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 very long. I can only imagine. You know, it's just to round about, we love what we do and we we want these films to be released. And, you know, if it's something that it's obtainable and doable, then yeah, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll go for it. As far as picking the movies, I mean, essentially it's just stuff we really like, you know, and, and we do listen to the fans, of course, of, of movies and of the label. If they want to see something, then yeah, it gets, you know, bumped up a little bit because obviously there's a want for it. Uh, and that's essentially kind of what we use that recommend a title for and, you know, paying attention on Facebook and Twitter and, and whatnot. Certain things are going to happen. Certain things will not happen for us. Maybe they'll happen for somebody else. Uh, I mean, it's rights are always a tricky thing. Yeah. And it's always, uh, it's never the same. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's <laughs> years in the sure. making, you know. Speaking of having to put all that work in, you know, another part of what I love about what you guys do over there is not only do you put out these great looking movies, but you also get some really incredible special features going, including interviews, commentaries with cast and crew. And I'm curious about how those conversations go, how often they're like, finally, some recognition versus please let me move on with my dental practice. You never have anyone. They're always asking, why are we doing it? (laughs) You never have people say, finally. You know, it's it's more or less they don't believe in their uh, product, which is sad. But being that this is more of a passion than a business, I mean, it is a business at the end of the day. But when I approach an actor, producer, director, writer, whatever it may be, if they're associated with the movie, I like the call. I like phone call. You know, I like the conversation with people because I approach it from I'm not a hired gun to go after this person and then talk to him and ask these mundane questions. That's a list of questions. No, I, I don't have that. You know, I have a movie that I've watched for years that we are releasing finally, and I'm excited about it. And now I get to tell those people like we're doing this. Now that's out of the way. I'm a huge (laughs) fan of this movie and this is what it means to me. Everything changes at that point, you know, and that's why I hate email. I hate the introduction email thing just because you can't get the point across to how important this movie is to you. And and honestly, you know, when I do these things, I approach it as a fan, really, because I am, you know, we don't acquire a movie and it's something that, I've never heard of before or watched. It's never like that. I mean, it's typically, you know, so there are newer, newer movies that I've turned on to through VS2. You know, it's like, okay, we have, you know, the ability to get this. Is this movie good? Then we watch it and make that decision. There, that happens too. But 
you know, it, it comes, you know, if we like the movie, then we really like the movie. It becomes part of that library of films that we have up here that we constantly love and talk about. It just becomes one of that family. Yeah. And essentially, that's what it is. It just becomes part of the Vinegar Syndrome family, whether it's, you know, something we've seen six months ago or something that we watched when we were six. We approach it all all the same. And, and when you do that with actors, especially some of the titles that we do, I mean, we're not dealing with you know, Hollywood films here where people were literally on set for two weeks and then got paid and then never remembered anything. Again, we're talking about movies like, you know, Beyond Dream's Door and, you know, Fatal Exam and Winter Beast, where all those people are still close friends. They all don't work. Some of them, some do. Most of them don't work in film anymore. You know, they did that on a whim with their friends and they're still friends. That's a story itself. You know, I don't give a shit about Harrison Ford and Hollywood Homicide with Josh Hartnett, you know, what story is going to be there? Nothing. There's no story in that. (laughs) That movie might be okay, but, you know, no one's taught, no one has a story to be told. There isn't a 50 minute documentary, you know, in that. So when you start talking to these people, that opens up a lot of doors and, and a lot of thoughts that they haven't thought about in a while. And also you can reconnect people, which is a big thing, or try to find others. You know, that kind of happened with uh, a little bit with Winter Beast. Like, you know, those all were still friends and they knew each other, but they haven't talked to each other in a very long time. The sep- you know, the interviews were separate, but they still spoke to one another, yeah. you know, like Fatal Exam. I mean, we got all those people together, you know, they were still friends. They all live in the same area, but it's been a lot while and since they saw the film. Yes. Bringing people together, you know, so it's, it, it, every movie is going to be different story, but it, I approach it always as a fan. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. Do you have a favorite subgenre within horror and does it vary depending on if you're watching something uh, low budget versus a more traditional studio horror movie? Yeah, I have two actually. If one is, if is like camaraderie. So if there's like good guys and bad guys, but then there's a greater evil Mm-hmm. That they have to, you know, come together and the camaraderie part yeah. to overcome this other obstacle. I'm such a sucker for it. <laughs> I, I love that because I love the conflict, the inner conflict. And I mean, one of my favorite movies of all time is Class 1999. And that has the two gangs that have to overcome their differences to kill the fucking robotic teacher. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, you know, so that's that's a big thing. And the other huge thing I'm a, automatically a sucker for and I'm super biased when it pops up in a movie, because as soon as I hear cult, I'm like, oh, this is the best <laughs> movie ever made. So if you have a cult in your movie or it's cult based, uh, like it, it's it's weird. I, I still think like Paranormal Activity 3 is like one of the best movies ever made because it has that fucking cult in it, you know, or the cults introduced. Um, Sometimes that's all it takes. Yeah, I mean, I just watched, you know, it, it was, I, I I mean, I love the movie no matter what, but I was like watching The Empty Man and, you know, as it progresses, like this movie's great. And then a cult is basically, you know, uh, dropped in into there your lap. Like, oh shit, this is the best movie ever made. So yeah, cults and like camaraderie, I think are my, my two like little subgenres. I guess camaraderie is something that happens, not really a subgenre. But there are movies where, you know, like there's a French zombie movie called The Horde that's really good. It's basically like the raid meets zombies. And it's 
these two like gangs that have to they're they're meet the, it's actually yeah it's two gangs and then like cops and they're all they stupidly go to the top floor of this fucking apartment high rise wow. uh during what it happens to be a zombie apocalypse and then they have to fight their way down to get to the bottom and i'm just like i'm like cops <laughs> have to band together with gangsters and one of my favorite movies of all time is Assault on Precinct 13 by John Carpenter, you know, that they have to band together. And I, the ending with Austin Stoker and they have to walk out together because they just fucking killed all these, the, the fucking gang that, that, you know, tried to kill them. I am just, a, I'm a sucker for that shit. Hell yeah. So let's get to your actual pick today for the best horror movie ever made. Uh, the Rick Rosenthal directorial debut from 1981, Halloween 2. Uh, this is written and produced by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill. So I'm going to say this counts as half a Carpenter pick and goes back to giving the edge over David Lynch on this show. Three and a half to three. <laughs> it's close. It's tight there. But uh, this this gives him the edge, I think. Well, it is said that Carpenter did shoot some of it. He went That's back right. uh, to shoot um, certain sequences that didn't have enough blood or kills. It's not really said because I don't think Carpenter ever wanted to take the the credit from Rosenthal because Rosenthal did a good job. I've always been a huge, huge, huge fan of Halloween 2. I've spoken to Rick Rosenthal many times about it. He doesn't like me when I call him because <laughs> I always have questions about Halloween 2. Uh, but no, I, I met Rick years ago and he thought I was kind of trolling him in a way when I thought this was like the best horror movie ever made. And um, I always get shit because I'm like, I, you know, I love Halloween a lot, but a man, I fucking love <laughs> Halloween too. But yeah, it was on, it might've been the first Michael Myers movie, like in the franchise that I saw. And the, there's, there's an element to Halloween. So, I mean, if we talk about the first Halloween, you know, it's, it's groundbreaking as far as a horror film is concerned. And everybody knows that we've talked it to death. So let's not spend much time on it. But it establishes so much. It establishes a sense of dread of this killer that we don't know, but we're told is evil and relentless. Um, but we don't really see it too much. You know, he is a killer. He is relentless against teenagers. But in Halloween 2, he's pitted up against other people. He's pitted up against adults while trying to kill a teenager. But the setting of a hospital at night during a busy time where people aren't in the hospital, a smaller hospital in Haddonfield, the atmosphere that surrounds, you know, at night, I work at a hospital, at night, lights are shut off. You have low light. You have hallways illuminated by red lights that are exits. So the lighting in Halloween 2 is just superb. You get to actually witness the relentlessness of Michael Myers in this. He walks through a <laughs> plate glass door. Oh, it's great. Jason, Freddy, they all kick open the doors and there's this huge explosion, you know, from this, you know, special effects, the pyro team. Like how many doors is fucking and windows has Jason like bursted in and it's like it, there's like many explosions. Michael Myers doesn't stop to try to open the door. He literally walks through that. And that scene as a kid, that terrified me because it's just he's honed in on one thing. And that was I still think that's one of the greatest moments in the franchise and, and for horror in general. 
you know, there are things about Halloween 2 that's kind of laughable with the flashbacks of Lori being a sister. You know, of course, Jamie Lee Curtis's wig is atrocious in the movie. <laughs> Michael Myers gets shot in the eyeballs <laughs> at the end. So, I mean, that he doesn't go down. He just starts swinging. So th- there's, there's a couple goofy elements. And I think when you talk to people, that's kind of what they focus on in the movie. But really, you have, you know, Michael Myers killing somebody with the fucking the end of a hammer, you know, the prong end of a hammer. He stabs a nurse in the back with a small scalpel and is able to raise her body. Incredible. You know, like two feet off the floor. There, There's just certain kills. Like it's just nastier. It's meaner. And that's the Michael Myers that I'm afraid of, you know, just because no matter where you go, he's going to be there. And he's already, and, and, and it really, it's established at the end of Halloween where he's shot, you know, six times, seven, if you hear it, <laughs> but you know, six times from Dr. Loomis and, you know, he's still walking around. He doesn't have body armor on and he's walking around and the end of Halloween. And of course, Halloween two picks up the moment after that. That's the moment that Myers is unstoppable. And that's, what's fucking scary. Hell the yeah. end of Halloween when he gets up and he walks away and Loomis is, you know, looking out over the balcony. And then we track back with all the shots of where Michael Myers could be or has been. And it's like, wait a second. That's the scary part. You know, now we know who he is. He is a fucking machine. He is unstoppable. And that's and that's why I, I, I think Halloween 2 elevates everything. And he is an ultimate killing machine. And the first movie establishes dread, which is scary, you know, and, and that's been done not as frequent in, in, in films, but the sense of dread is great because yeah. it is scary. It's that impending doom that we have that no, we know something's wrong. Something bad's going to happen, but we're just not seeing it. In part two, it establishes fear and, and you're scared of what's going on. And he's walking everywhere. In Friday the 13th, Jason walks, but he also appears places to where he probably did run. And he does kind of jog in the movies and, you know, a little bit. He does kind of run in the movies, but especially in two, the one that came out this year, you know, you see him running after the cop who goes towards his shack and, uh, you know, he's he's full out running. So, (laughs) yeah. and, 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 And Michael in the in the first two movies he has he doesn't even walk fast he walks slow yeah and 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 that's when it's just this he hones in on something in part 2 you really get to see that you know um there's just that one moment where Laurie says michael and he stops and he tilts he does the michael myers head tilt you know dick warlock's head tilt and you know that's the one moment that Michael pauses. Yeah. And it's just like, that's fucking scary, you know? And that's also the moment where Michael does realize something, but it's quickly put back. Like, (laughs) fuck it. You know, so it's that moment of clarity that maybe he knows what he's doing and he knows who this person is, you know, whether it's his sister or not, it doesn't matter. It's that, that moment he realizes like he recognizes something. 
And I think that's truly important in the movie, even though it's this like cool thing where like, oh, Michael Myers tilted his head. That's awesome. That's <laughs> a cool thing. It actually means quite a bit that he did that. Yeah. And the same as the first movie, we all like Michael Myers, you know, PJ Souls is in bed. She's wanting the beer from, from Bob. Real the cute, Bob. Michael Myers has the sheet on. It's like, oh, that's creepy. You're telling me that Michael entered the home, <laughs> walked around, looked for a sheet, cut out the eyes, put the sheet on, went to the door. That's comical. Yeah. That's funny. But yeah. we, we look at it as scary, but it's, <laughs> why did Michael do that? He's got you a know, great sense of the dramatic. Right. It's this creepy a thing that happens in the movie, but you have to go back to think that Michael actually went through the steps of trying to do that. Right. You don't have that in part two. No, like, absolutely not. He just says, fuck it. You're all dead. And he <laughs> doesn't give a shit. Plus I, the, the score that Carpenter and Howarth did for, for part two, it's just, it has this heavy, heavy synth and it's not piano uh, anymore. Cause the first, pretty much, I think the first score or the, the first film is entirely on Carpenter's piano Two is a synthesizer and there it's just, and it's, you know, more moody. Um, you know, the music says so much to what's going on and it's the same, it's the same fucking thing. It's the same score. It's just synth. Yeah. It's a big change though. That, that little, that one thing really makes a big difference. Yeah. And it's just like the, the notes can like, you have like a more droning cause like piano, you have boop, you know, in the synth, you can lay down on the key and you can have that long fucking sound that, that yeah. just kind of lingers. And again, that just adds more to the filmmaking process of, of just having this kind of, you know, uh, droning sound that mainly like that droning sound that makes you focus. And that's Myers thing. He's just focusing on one thing and that's just fucking everybody up. <laughs> And, and essentially, yeah, that's essentially why I think ha- Halloween Two has just so much more going for it. And I think we, you know, we look at it as this cool sequel, but it's it's a lot more than that. It, it really is this. Uh, it's a, a very empowering uh, sequel. It, it does so much, and I think it establishes a lot more with the further sequels. Yeah, because you know, it 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 really makes Myers this really unlike just this relentless killing machine. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny that you mentioned that um, Rick Rosenthal felt like you were trolling him with your joy for this, because I remember this was a a movie that I saw pretty early on in my horror experience, and uh, I ranked it really highly. I liked it a lot, and I was really surprised when I got pretty vitriolic pushback on it. Everyone, like you said, really focuses on some of the goofier stuff, and I think that this movie, like you said, the lighting in it is fantastic. I like a lot of the kills in it. I think that that uh, single mindedness that you're talking about really does come through in a, in a way that's really fantastic. Um, and uh, and so I was thrilled that you <laughs> picked this one because I was like, hell yeah, I'm ready to, to go on there and then defend this movie on the record. Producers Erwin Yablons and Mustafa Akkad actually wanted Carpenter to get right back in the director's chair, uh, but he wasn't really interested because not only did he think that the original was kind of a standalone thing, but he also didn't really see a lot of the money from the success of Halloween 1. 
Um, so what he agreed to do was to write it sort of as a way to get what he was owed and also to he got involved in, in selecting the director. And he originally wanted the art director from Halloween, Tommy Lee Wallace, to direct. Uh, Tommy did decline, although he would go on to direct Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, another movie which I think is fantastic. And they went with Rick Rosenthal off the strength of his 30-minute short, The Toyer, which he describes as a thriller in the Hitchcockian tradition. A great through line from the first, which also has plenty of deference to Psycho, even so explicit as the named characters, Sam Loomis and Marion Chambers, which is a portmanteau of Marion Crane and Sheriff Al Chambers. And of course, Jamie Lee Curtis is the daughter of Janet Lee, who played Marion Crane. And I think you can definitely see that German expressionist influence extend into this movie. Um, you know, you have these long twisted hallway shots, these hard edged shadows, people lurking in those shadows, uh, which is, of course, in cinematographer Dean Cundy's wheelhouse um, after he agreed to do this, uh, turning down Poltergeist to do it. That said, Rosenthal and Cundy didn't always see eye to eye. There was a nice quote that I uh, saw from Rosenthal in a book I like called Hitchcock, The Making of a Reputation by Robert Capsis. And he says, I don't think that you should make films for audiences. I think you should make a film that entertains you, that you want to make, and that you have to hope that film finds an audience. And I'm curious about how you feel about that sort of thing. The way that people approach a movie, if they should do whatever they think is best, or if they should be like, well, what is the audience going to expect? Because that was very much what Cundy, uh, his approach to it was. It all depends on the genre, I think. And I think with Halloween, it fuels the fan service of what the first movie did. Even though we are talking about like 1979, you know, or 78, 79, 80, you know, leading up to this release. But again, I think it does uh, what the movie, a sequel should do is stays in line with what it set out to do, which obviously Carpenter made happen with his script. (laughs) But it also adds so much more new flavor as to making Myers this, you know, and that's done in the edit, that's done in Cundy's work, that's done in Rosenthal's direction of really amplifying the 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 soulless killer of Michael Myers to carry on in the, in these sequels. So, I mean, I it all I would say that all depends on the project. Of, of 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 what it really is but applying it to halloween i think it is a different movie or you know at least half of it is yeah and maybe that's what people didn't like because the first one you know we have judith that's killed and then we don't have any kills for 40 minutes that we see on screen but we don't really look at halloween like that we don't like all the nothing happens for 40 minutes. You never hear anybody say that because a lot does happen in 40 minutes. But the second one does set up like a normal 80s slasher where it starts off the carnage right away and then it never really stops the carnage, even during the credits, <laughs> you know, fires on fire. So so I, I do think a lot is added if that answers um, your question. And I think you can really see Rosenthal's style come through in scenes like the very psycho-esque moment when the nurse spins the chair around to find the corpse. Cundy felt staging it that way was a distraction, drawing the audience out of the film because they're looking for a rote gag or flaw or whatever. And he said, quote, if you're going to ask an audience to believe the impossible, you have to make it as believable as possible. You have to answer all their questions. So I just thought it was interesting that the two of them uh, felt so differently about this. 
But not having Carpenter as the actual director didn't mean that the producers were going to just bury this with no budget. They were counting on fans of the original to come back, despite the leagues of imitators in the three years between. And they increased the budget from Halloween 1's 300000 to $2.5 million. Carpenter did claim that he struggled with the writing. And he said that uh, the only thing that helped him through was a sixer of Budweiser every day. Um, but he got it done and they got the whole cast back together, except uh, the man behind the mask. Previously, Nick Castle, who would go on to direct The Last Starfighter, now Dick Warlock. And I think it's really interesting that Michael Myers is famous for this single-mindedness, and it does really come to a head in this movie because Dick Warlock had been a stunt person in movies like Jaws. And I do really feel like that single-mindedness does remind me of Bruce the Shark in in terms of that like dogged pursuit tearing through anything that's in the way. I really do feel like there is a little bit of influence from one to the other. Yeah. And so Dick Warlock stepped into this role of the shape and um, his stunt work really helped him to be cognizant of the actors during the stunts in this. Everyone had very nice things to say that I found. Uh, He was reportedly super chill and helped make people as comfortable as possible while he was killing them. (laughs) But while the person inside may have changed, the mask itself was the same, brought out from under Deborah Hill's bed, nicotine yellowing and all. And, uh, you know, they filmed that at Morningside Hospital in L.A. and at Pasadena Community Hospital, which was near an airport. And they said very challenging to shoot at. And to to touch a little more on Carpenter's role in this, he has said, like you said, uh, he did, he doesn't want to take away from Rosenthal's influence and, and what he brought to it. But he has said that he did step in during post-production. He and the producers screened it for some unimpressed teenagers, they said. Uh, so he went back and he did some reshoots to amp up the gore. They cut some of the, the more drawn-out action scenes uh, that Rosenthal had let uh, linger to build tension. Again, very Hitchcockian to sort of let these things uh, sit there and build. Um, and like you said, Carpenter also did do the score, composing it and performing with Alan Howarth. Opened on Mischief Night, October 30th, 1981, and ultimately it was a success, making $25.5 million in the U.S., despite the protestations of Goraverse fogies like Ebert, who derided it as monotonous geek show and relentlessly stupid. So thanks again, as always, Raj. <laughs> he always had a weird approach sometimes. Sometimes he would like things that you would not expect, and then he hated things that, why do you hate it? <laughs> you know, oh well. But this was really this like everything. It would be boring. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and this was number two for horror that year, only behind American Werewolf in London. I mean, it beat The Howling, The Omen 3, Friday the 13th Part 2. So it's not like this wasn't up against anything interesting. Yeah. Um, this, w- had, well, this went up against some big contenders and beat a lot of them. And there were also critics like Janet Maslin who understood that it could be more useful to compare to its peers rather than its predecessors. Uh, And thus, she lauded it as a class act with suspense and variety. And I agree with you, Janet. (laughs) It did stir up some controversy thanks to the People v. Boyer, which was a 1989 case that discussed violence in media after Francis and Eileen Harbitz were killed by a man who claimed to have suffered hallucinations brought on by watching Halloween 2 while drinking, smoking weed, and doing PCP. Um, The jury correctly said, hey, that's bullshit when he said that the movie was the thing responsible for the deaths. Um, But nevertheless, they are known as the Halloween 2 murders, which uh, I don't think that's a fair association necessarily, but uh, that was the claim. I mean, if you're doing all those things and you watch Halloween 2, I mean, you may get some creative ideas (laughs) to be this relentless killing machine. You know, I mean, uh, Billy said it best in Scream. 
is that <laughs> movies don't create psychos. Movies make psychos more creative. Indeed. So it's not <laughs> wrong. <laughs> Even though Rosenthal said he does regret trying so hard to replicate Carpenter's style, and I always am a fan of uh, more Hitchcockian elements. I'm a big fan of his, obviously, but um, I still think that this movie works incredibly well. Um, and the fact that it does manage to come together while, you know, people aren't necessarily um, giving their all in a way, uh, you know, in terms of someone like John Carpenter kind of feeling like he is, uh, is not necessarily doing this out of passion, but because he felt like he was owed something. Um, and, 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 you know, I think that Rick Rosenthal is able to take that script and really make it something incredible uh, is to his credit. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good a good way to look at it is that, you know, Carpenter is one person that <laughs> he's 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 my idol, but he also really just is so burnt out on talking about what he's done. And it even started back then to where he really didn't want to do Halloween, too. And if he did direct it, we probably wouldn't be talking about it right now. And I think that you have, I think it was a good idea to have, you know, an up and coming director do something where he had big shoes to fill and he had a decent script, a decent idea and approached it trying to, you know, follow suit what Carpenter did while trying to make his own. That's the reason why it's so good is yeah. you had, you know, so many driving elements and then, you know, your Erwin Blondes has always been known as a great producer. He's always been there for everybody. I really discovered that just talking to like Dennis Christopher when we were doing Fade to Black and talking to Erwin about you know that the movie and just how much he loved it. You know, and that was going to be his baby. Was you know Fade to Black was going to be the next Halloween, and it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Return you know, pushing more into Halloween too, after Fade <laughs> Black came out and wasn't very successful. But he is a producer that would, you know, sweep the floors, but also get what you need. And that's what you need on right. um, is you need a producer like that. And, you know, a lot of credit should go to Yablons for this because he probably did make that happen. You know, especially for a first time filmmaker, he, you know, was very passionate about making this movie happen. And and yeah, that's what a director needs is a good producer like that. Absolutely. So to get into the actual movie, I mean, it, the, I love this opening right away. It's cozy as hell. You get the old Universal production card and then the classic Halloween font while Mr. Sandman plays. It just washes over you. You're just like, oh, yeah, I'm back, baby. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it really does this really cool setup of being kind of comical in a way, but it really is kind of, it feels like they're just preparing you for, for what's to come. Absolutely. And we get to see the tail end of Halloween again, which I'll never complain about uh, with Michael Myers attacking Laurie Strode one last time before being shot off the balcony by a nearby Dr. Loomis on Halloween night, 1978. Uh, That's right, folks. This is technically a period piece. (laughs) Loomis goes, uh, he goes outside to check the corpse, but finds that it has vanished. He tells someone to call the cops. I love this line where uh, they complain about being trick-or-treated to death. And then Loomis, unimpeachable, sends a drama that he has. He screams, you don't know what death is before whirling around and storming off. And the theme kicks in and you're you're just ready. It's so good. Yeah, I, I think picking up exactly, like immediately 
is such a good move. And Myers goes to kill two old people and you know, the, the young, the young girl, like right afterwards. Right. Like, and we get that Michael POV shot because they're nearby, you know? Absolutely. Like I said, we are in Michael's POV as he does wander away and he, he starts killing people again. We see Loomis talking to the cops and he, while Michael is busy killing this, this teen uh, nearby, Lori is taken to Haddonfield Memorial Hospital. I love this kid walking up with the razor in his mouth from the apple. This is something that was uh, a play on a popular ur- urban legend from around then. Uh, you know, it obviously persists in various forms to today as well. But this really not only plays into people's fear, but it's also pretty shocking to see. Like to just the kid turns around and there's just a whole ass razor blade sticking out of his face. And you're like, oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and I think that's the other thing is that, you know, we have the story and I've never really asked that question. I could call Rick and ask him. He'll appreciate that. But was the play with the razor blade part of kind of the boogeyman? You know, like we have the boogeyman doesn't really exist. The false thing about the razor blades and apples that didn't really exist. But is that kind of a play into that, you know, that, oh, the boogeyman's actually happening. So (laughs) razor blades and apples are too. Yeah, Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, You know, at the very least, it indicates that there's more than one psycho in Haddonfield tonight. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Maybe it was Michael. (laughs) He's he's going around. He's really more of a prankster than anything. Got some TP out there and everything. Yeah, he, he just at the house, he just set up, like, take your candy and go and, <laughs> and, and, and did that to it. So perfect. Right at the Myers house. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that I think is really interesting is that as Lori gets unloaded from the from the ambulance, she gets some POV shots. And I think that that's a really interesting way to start setting up the connection between them is that hitherto this moment, we've only seen it from Michael's point of view. In the first movie, we get it as a, when he's the very young kid. In this, we get it when he's killing this teenager. And now to, to make the only other one from Lori, you know, even subconsciously, you start connecting the two together. And I think that, you know, say what you will about Lori winding up being his sister, they're doing their best with that concept. And, and really, I think, using interesting film techniques to make sure that that gets established. Yeah, I never really looked at it that way before. I mean, I never actually really put that together, but that, yeah, that makes, that makes total sense. You know, at least something from a, you know, Rosenthal Hitchcockian standpoint, that would make sense why he would do something like that. So we get lots of needle shots, which make me personally uneasy because I really am very scared of needles. And uh, Lori is knocked out against her will so that she can get stitched up. Loomis thinks that he sees Michael and pursues him with his gun chasing them into the street where a cop immediately smashes into him, (laughs) pinning him to a van that promptly explodes. That van was carrying the world's most flammable cargo because boy, does it go up great pyrotechnic special effect. It looks incredible. (laughs) Poor Ben Tramer. Yeah. And, and the thing is Lori never finds out. Uh, He never finds out that the boy that she actually liked went up in flames. Yeah. He, somehow had a mask that resembled Michael Myers. <laughs> yeah, he uh, he never gets to go to the dance with Lori like she wanted. I will say this is not the only time in this franchise that someone is killed for being mistaken for Michael Myers. Uh, in four, Ted is shot to pieces by a group of dudes on the prowl. I also will say that, interestingly to me, this car was driven by Dick Warlock. 
who also played patrolman number three and he did the stunt himself. And so to have the guy who plays Michael killing this faux Michael, you know, there's layers here. Yeah. That's funny. He says the guy's name. He's like, shit, Bill yeah. fucking Ted Hollister. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, and then I think Dick Warlock's son is in um, Halloween too, as well. Yeah, I, I think, think he's the kid carrying the the boombox, right? Boombox, yeah. And the the one thing that Michael might the first time I guess it's established, well, not really established. I Me, mean, he doesn't do it in the first the first movie, but he doesn't kill children. Yeah. So there you go. That's why he yeah, uh, he, he makes he it. <laughs> oh well, hey. I was really hoping in the new Halloween when he goes through the house if he just would have took it that night that baby oh man he should have crying would have stopped that that would have been monumental i agree i totally agree but it's just like i guess they're just staying true to the michael myers doesn't kill children it would have been good though it would have been good (laughs) which the baby is actually voiced by jamie lee curtis in the new halloween wow she does the baby cry yeah she's (laughs) really good at it there you go. Fun fact for you. Jimmy, the paramedic is all agitated about these killings and he's interested in Lori, despite his partner, Bud's warnings not to get involved with a patient. Uh, while Michael hears this broadcast that indicates Lori's location and he starts making his way over to the hospital, cutting the phone lines and fucking up the cars so that nobody can escape before he starts wandering the halls looking for Lori. I love, love, love the shot where she's in her bed and through the doorway illuminated in this great way. It's just the strung up decorations of the word happy Halloween just looming over her. It's such a nice moment. Yeah. A security guard goes out to check the phone lines before getting attacked by a cat. Classic fake out. You got to have them. Then he goes to check the storeroom where he, he gets absolutely just totally fucked up by Michael Myers and the back end of this hammer. Interesting. I thought that Halloween 2 and Friday 2 released the same year. Both have uh, the same back of hammer kill. Um where Jason hammers a cop. Yeah. Yeah. Just parallel thought. The autopsy of Ben Tramer is going poorly in terms of identification. (laughs) So Loomis is like, we have to assume he's still out there. And the deputy who's now in charge of the, of the case, because the previous uh, police officer found out that Annie, his daughter was one of the victims in the original Halloween. So he has gone to go take care of that. He's dealing with his, uh, his loss. And um, they agree to do another sweep. But the townsfolk have gathered at, uh, you know, the monster's castles with pitchfork and torches. You know, they're in front of the Myers house with rocks and they're vandalizing it. And sort of as a group expression of fear. And again, it's like the way that it is calling back to these very classic horror movies, not only with Hitchcock, but with, with Hitchcock's influences as well. I just think is really fantastic. And it's such a nice way of sort of standing on, on the shoulders of giants and, and identifying with your predecessors in a way I, that I think really only horror does. And don't forget Dana Carvey is and Dana Carvey is there. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you just said, doesn't really matter because Dana Carvey's in this movie too. <laughs> he sure but you is. just see the back of his head and kind of the side of his face. He gets told uh, to make sure that he, Gets a statement from the kids. <laughs> yeah. Back at the hospital, we get some more of these really nicely shot hallway scenes. And Lori dreams about her mom saying that she's not really her mother and visiting Michael at Smith's Grove while blood drips faster and faster, starting to accumulate. I love dream sequence stuff because 
you know, you get this surreal feeling that it brings and even sort of just brought into a movie like this, where it kind of takes you by surprise to have it. I think that it, it works really well and it kind of it throws you off your feet. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's done well. I mean, I understand why people don't like it, but it has the 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 dreams and the memories are very like Ken Russell fever dreamish to where it's uncomfortable. And yeah, you do have that blood dripping, which it, it's it's uncomfortable is yeah. what it is. And it's not meant to be like, it doesn't feel like, I'm sure that was meant to be exposition in the script, but Rosenthal made it to the point where it was uncomfortable. And I guess could have been dismissed as, you know, a fever dream and really didn't happen. Yeah. I, I like how it's handled in the movie, even if it is kind of a silly, like, why is Michael doing this? Because it is a lot scarier if he is just trying to kill Lori because she's there. Right. I, I agree. Yeah. This is the kind of thing where it's like, if it's going to be in there, I think that they did a good job with it. <laughs> right. But and his nurse girlfriend are in the hydrotherapy room making out. And Michael turns up the heat to an unsustainable level, which forces Bud out of the water to check on it. His girlfriend, dries off while we see Bud get murdered entirely in the background in silence. I absolutely adore this. It's the very much the lookout. He's right there of it all this time amplified now through actual kills, you know, in, in the first one, when you see him sort of uh, sit up in the background, it's, it's this huge moment. And now we're getting this, but not only is he just there, he's committing these crimes. We're seeing it happen in the background. You want to, call out and say look look behind you and and you can't and it's just done so so well i will have to interject that i am also obligated to mention anytime i can mention the movie gaudy with john travolta from 2018 leo rossi who played bud is the one who wrote the film gaudy and was also in the film of course and helped produce it but he is the writer of the amazing 2018 Gotti film. Incredible. They, who would have, who would have seen it coming? <laughs> Old bud. <laughs> and then also, you know, a, another part about how Myers is kind of relentless in this is that we have a movie to where the killer is getting injured while killing somebody. And you don't really see that happen too many, too much in slashers, but Michael has his hand in that boiling water, you know, and you get to see the damage on his hand as he's dumping her, which really shows true that he is a killing machine because even that scalding hot water that is killing her doesn't phase his hand. He's not, you know, grabbing her hair and dunking her, using something to push her down. He's literally doing it with his hand in the water. And that says a lot too, you know, that does really show the killer that he is. Absolutely. And I I think that, first of all, they've done an incredible job ratcheting up the tension to this point because there's not a lot of cuts happening during this scene. It's really all playing out, playing out in front of you. And as he approaches and she thinks that it's Bud and she's talking with him with her back turned (laughs) until the silence becomes too much, you know, it's, it's so tense. And then for that to switch to this absolutely brutal death, you know, he burns her to death in the water, but he doesn't even just drown her. He yanks her out of the water a few times to really sort of make sure that it is as cruel as possible. It really, I think, does a great job of making Michael even scarier. As you said, he's taking damage that he doesn't care about. He is 
he's making sure that this is as painful as possible. I just think that it's, it's an incredible scene. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's another thing that, like I said already, it's, it's just to show this relentless killing machine (laughs) and, and like he's been shot, like what, what else is going to happen to Michael that's going to phase him. And and I think that establishes that he doesn't feel the pain. So you literally have to just chop his head off, you know, in order I mean, he gets, like I said, he gets shot in the eyeballs and still doesn't fucking phase him. Yeah. You know? So why, why would Michael die? Right. Yeah. That, I mean, he, he really doesn't feel like it. He's, he's been through so much already that at this point you're like, yeah, I guess he wouldn't be stopped by, you know, some, some scalding water. Yeah. Loomis and the cops are investigating the elementary school that Michael broke into on his way to the hospital so that he could uh, stab a picture of a family in the sister and write Sawin on the chalkboard. You know, it's interesting that I forgot that they start bringing in this like supernatural element and the cult of thorn stuff this early. Uh, really interesting and kind of makes me like the idea that it gets incorporated more in the later ones. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely something that filmmakers watched and said, oh, shit, that's an open. And it's kind of like it is this off kind of off scene that happens in the movie that doesn't really feel like it should belong. Cause why did Myers go to a school? Right. When did he have time, you know, but maybe thinking of his childhood, you know, uh, he's, uh, you know, regressing or something who knows. Uh, I mean, it is kind of an off putting scene, but it does pay off. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you call the call of Thorn paying <laughs> off and Halloween six and the end of part five, <laughs> Which it's fine if you like those movies, but I, I'm I'm Halloween four and five until the end. I mean, the end of five is fine, but yeah, Halloween six, <laughs> not for you. I know I know it has its fan base, but heavy metal Michael Myers music and that awful fucking mask he has. <laughs> give me H two O, but I yes, mean, hey, oh, I, lo- I like H two O still better than Resurrection, which yes. is funny. Because that shit's directed by Rick Rosenthal. Yeah, he came back. I, I was funny. saving that for the end. Rosenthal but he uh... made the best Halloween movie and the worst <laughs> Halloween movie. And I don't know how that's possible. Very funny. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree um, with pretty much everything you said there, especially with the fact that uh, H2O deserves our respect. You know, I, I think, you know, and plus, you know, Steve Miner, who directed it, who directed, you know, some of the Friday the 13th films. Yeah. And Lake Placid. He really brought back kind of the feel of the original Halloween films, I think, in H2O. Mm-hmm. Even though we are kind of not having the best actors in the movie as far as the kids go, but I thought LL Cool J was a good element to the movie because he yes. brings in so much comedy. He has a line in that movie where they sneak up on him and he's scared and he goes, ah, fuck me, shit. And <laughs> I thought saying fuck me, shit was one of the funniest things ever around that time i said i mean i still do but you know also you have you just have so many characters in that movie and you also have the setting to where it is in this abandoned place now that is obviously really busy during other times like right. halloween too uh low lights because saving electricity with very few people so there are a lot of elements to h2o that funnel into you know the first two halloween movies which i think it you know i and again, I think when I when I when I watch Halloween, I typically do one, two, H two O, and then like I watch four and five and six, and then I watch three, 
and I don't watch eight. <laughs> and then I watch, you know, Rob Zombie's one and two. So that that's that's pretty much what I do. I always skip eight. I I I, I don't like it. Hey, can't hold that against you. <laughs> yeah. You know, there is a cut of the movie that exists called Halloween Homecoming that is a little bit different, that's better, but you still have, they should have never dated the technology thing with Halloween. Cause I think that ruins, yeah. uh, ruins a movie when you date your movie like that. You know, if you did your movie through MySpace or webcams, it's just, it just doesn't work. It's like cool at the time, but then you watch it and you know, it's like even five years later, you're like, Oh, no one is using this. <laughs> like, yeah. What? It's like, what, what, every, like the killers using live journal. What the <laughs> fuck is that? The MySpace kill. It's like watching cry wolf. And it's like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> one last thing that I wanted to touch on with H2O just before we move on, since we're talking about it, is I also really like sort of the way that they handle Lori's character in H2O you know, you compare it to something like 2018, where she's sort of retreated inward in terms of bunkers and guns and stuff. I think it's interesting in H2O that she's clearly trying to numb herself to the trauma that she's been through and, and you know, this functioning alcoholism that she has picked up. Uh, I think, it, you know, the way it, it, it's not always handled perfectly, but it's at least, I think, an interesting concept that they touch on and, and allude towards. Um and, uh, you know, I, I'm sad that that Halloween 2 and H2O kind of just got cast to the side for. Uh, yeah, no, for I mean, I, 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 I want to see Mikey on the big screen no matter what. So I'm fine with whatever they do. But yeah, Erasing Part 2 was like when I found that out, I was like, why? Oh, yeah, <laughs> like you could just make it happen. Like it's in the same night. Yeah. I mean, it's fine. The movie's not very good, but it does bring back Mikey. It has a really good score. It has actually some pretty good characters. It just doesn't feel like a Halloween movie. It does feel like the traditional dumping of a Blumhouse movie. You know, and I'm glad what they do. I'm glad they give filmmakers voices and stuff. It just it just doesn't feel. I'm hoping that maybe that changes with kills, you yeah. know. Now that they've proven uh, it can be successful, ends, which is crazy. But yeah. hey, no complaints because we get three fucking Michael Myers <laughs> movies within like, you know, well, we would have had them sooner if it wasn't for fucking COVID. <laughs> but basically we had like in in a way we were going to have three Michael Myers movies in five years. Hell yeah. And who you says know, no to that? That's fine. I don't give a shit, you know. <laughs> And I, I enjoy it because you know what I got to. I went to the, you know, I saw it at fan. I saw the premiere at Fantastic Fest, which you know I came out. I was like, eh, it's whatever. But the the biggest moment is I when it came out. I went to go to the theater with my mom, which yeah, I obviously didn't get to watch the you know all the previous ones, but the the first one I actually got to see in the theater uh, was unfortunately Halloween Six. But that was the very first film that, you know, the Halloween and then ever since, you know, with even the Rob Zombie movies going to see Halloween with my with my mother. The same thing with Terminator. The Terminator franchise sucks, but I'll always be able to go see, you know, that franchise with my mother. Yeah, Um, that's awesome. Same thing with Scream, you know, doesn't give a shit. I'll go (laughs) see it with my mom. You know, it's cool. It gives me some time. But yeah, no, you know, but that's the way the franchise has always been. You know, so it was kind of fitting that Halloween, another movie called Halloween 
Halloween, <laughs> Halloween was on this roller coaster. Yep. You know, and and I guess that's the cool thing about the franchise is that it is different almost each and every time. You know, yeah. or they do try to add something new. It's not. It really isn't like Friday the Thirteenth, which I think Friday the Thirteenth has a better formula <laughs> as keeping it the same. They just add like different things, but I mean, we really do have like what four or five Friday the Thirteenth doing the exact same thing. <laughs> you really don't have that in Halloween per se. I mean, one and two, sure. Four and five, sure. But the rest of them, not really. Even Rob yeah. Zombie's like movies are completely different. Yeah, absolutely. You know, know, you do have that. You know, it's kind of like, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street a little bit, where it is way different as far as how they tell the story, but even more so. Um, So, you know, at least they're trying to do something new. Yeah. Got to respect the swings. Yeah, but it's fine, man. Just give me Mikey on the big screen. I'll be fine. That's (laughs) right. Marion Chambers, who worked with Loomis at Smith's Grove, comes in to tell Loomis that the governor the governor himself as Loomis scoffs <laughs> has ordered him to leave with a marshal escort. Lori has a reaction to her medication and she's unresponsive. So a nurse goes to get her a doctor. And this is the scene I was talking about earlier, because after some very tense approaching, she turns the doctor around and she's terrified by a syringe in his eye, as am I. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then Michael steps out of the shadows and kills her too with a needle to the temple, causing an embolism by injecting an air bubble into her brain before doing a classic head tilt. This is so fucking scary to me. And I love, love, love the idea of Michael just operating in the background this whole time that we didn't see this doctor get killed, that Michael is there and people could be dying at any moment that you know i i just think that that's such a great way to really make you be like oh my god he really is relentless anyone that's introduced could be dead at any time mike stumble uh, mike michael stumbles across Sorry, you can call him mike we're, we're on first name base or nickname basis like that yeah um, mike stumbles across what he thinks is Lori, and uh, he stabs at her several times with a scalpel another uh, very hitchcockian way of shooting this i thought with the the, the arm swings there but it was just the pillow arranged as a trick because Lori is onto him limping away sneakily before <laughs> discovering the cut phone lines and just kind of curling up in the corner in fear. Jimmy and nurse Jill are searching the hospital for Lori. And we get a great shot of Michael walking down a hall on the security camera. And then on that same security camera, seeing the nurse walk down that same hallway shortly thereafter, really great moment. And it helps to establish her getting scared by what she thinks is Mike. We also think is Mike. <laughs> and it winds up being Jimmy instead. They split up to look for Lori one last time before going for help. And Jimmy winds up finding the body of head nurse Alves. Uh, she has been murdered as hell. And he slips on her blood, smashing his head on the floor and passing out. This is a really interesting moment because... For someone who really feels like they're establishing this guy as like a possible hero to just be like, no, he's going to crack his head on this floor and be like concussed and wind up even causing more harm, I think is such a great rug pull. Oh, yeah, because he lays lays on the horn later, but ultimately survives at the end in uh, deleted scenes because I don't know. Is that in the work print of the movie? 
Yeah, I, for, I know that they're putting the. I think it's in the TV edit too. The the the. They're putting the uh, ambulance together. Yeah, yeah, and um, you know, good for him. Good for you. Yeah, Jimmy. kind of a kind of a sweet moment in a way yeah. that you know that they're because he obviously has a crush on her, and there is that there is some chemistry there, which is great, even yeah. though they don't have many interactions. There is some kind of like little sweet chemistry there for the little time that they have, like where he asks, like she wants a Coke or something, yeah, which he should not be doing, <laughs> but you know, Jimmy's an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> he does slip on uh nurse. Uh, was it Al- Alva's blood? Yeah. And honestly that, you know, that's one of the one scenes that really stuck out to me as a kid, that floor covered in that blood. Oh, I did not like that. It looks really good. Yeah, I, I did not like that scene in that movie. I don't know what it is. I don't have a thing against blood. It was just, I don't know. It's just maybe the color. <laughs> I just didn't like it. Yeah. Bueno. I can't blame you for that. And uh, Nurse Jill runs to her car, but the tire is slashed. She checks the rest all the same. Uh, she runs back into the hospital so that she's not out in the open. Uh, but that's a dangerous game to play. And she sees Lori. Just in time, he gets stabbed from behind by Michael. As you said, he lifts her up, hanging from just the scalpel. Man, what an incredible moment to just see this show of strength. Uh, it's it's terrifying. Yeah, because he's not lifting her up with a knife. It's with a <laughs> fucking scalpel. Yeah. So he's got to finagle that thing in such a way and then fucking lift with one arm. Man. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Is, it's just It constantly shows the power of this guy. Yeah. And uh, Lori flees, but she's got a fractured foot, so she's slow. And this lets Michael really take his time as well. There's that kind of delicious cat and mouse game that he's playing that he loves to play. And um, he chases her into the storerooms, which, as you say, have some really incredible lighting, these red lights that look so good down there. And she finally manages to get into an elevator and leave him behind. And the shot of her sort of petrified against the back wall. Absolutely incredible. And, you know, you almost get the sense that Michael could have gotten in there, but he is enjoying the game. And it really does, again, reinforce that sort of cruelty and that evil that Loomis is always talking about. We don't we don't see it as much in the first one. We don't see that evil. And so the whole time you're like, oh, Loomis is overreacting in this one. You get why he is so desperate to, to get this wrapped up. Yeah. And that that's the thing that's always frustrated me is that, you know, we do have, you know, Loomis, uh, you know, constantly constantly. And it's great. I mean, there's, it's a, it's a really wonderful character, but he's constantly like, you know, evil, evil, <laughs> Michael, Michael, evil. But we actually get to see it in the second one. And then people dismiss the movie and it's like, no, this is what he's been fucking warning you about. Yeah. You know, like it's always it's always that thing in movies where you have the person or the kid saying there's monsters in the fucking basement. Oh, you're just, you know, no, this is it. <laughs> like this is like no one's full of shit. Loomis is Loomis was actually holding back on you. Yeah. Loomis <laughs> you innocent. Know? Like if, if, if you come to me and like, hey, this guy can lift people up with one arm with a scalpel and walk through a plate glass window without <laughs> actually running through it, then I'm scared. Yeah, I, I totally agree. This is exactly why he wanted you to get your ass away from there, Lonnie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, Lori does make it outside and she hides in a car. 
this is when we, I, it's like not quite a match shot, but it is interesting that they cut from her hiding in this car to Loomis and uh, the Marshall and, and Marion in a car as well. And this is also a very Hitchcockian car ride scene, the way that it's shot with the two of them sort of very flat with the rear window. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's obvious to see the influences. I keep bringing it up, but it's, it's all stuff that I really like a lot. And Marion tells him, that Lori is actually the Myers two-year-old uh, who was adopted by the Strodes at four. And then they uh, had the record sealed to, to protect the family. And Loomis demands that the marshal take them to the hospital to check on her. And when the marshal refuses, Loomis pulls his gun on him and shoots out the window. And I'm like, you cannot deny that the man gets results. Yeah, that car turns around really quickly. <laughs> the one comical thing in the movie, I guess. <laughs> Other than um, Bud. But back at Lori's hiding spot, Jimmy gets in. He's clearly concussed at the very least. And when he tells Lori that they're going to get out of there, he, in fact, passes back out right onto the horn, setting it off and revealing their spot. There's there's an element of that where I like start laughing just because you're like, oh, my God, I like they're so close to getting away. And then for it to, to slip out of their fingers at the last second, like that, the suspense and the fear just washes over you. And you have to laugh just because you're like, Oh no, like I can't believe that this keeps happening for them. They're, they're never going to get away. Yeah. Lori pulls him off of the horn and tries to crawl away just as Loomis, Marion and the marshal arrive. And she weakly calls out for help, but they're determined and they set off into the hospital uh, Lori picks up the pace when she sees Michael appear, brought to her by the horn, and she pounds on the door and screams for help, getting let in just in time. But this is, as you say, where Michael just straight up walks through the door. It's incredible. It falls to pieces in front of him. Everyone just stares in amazement. And not before you get too far, there was, um, you know, in Scream, there's a lot of callbacks to Halloween, but there's that callback in Halloween too, because Casey's trying to scream for her parents. Um, right. And, you know, obviously she can't cause she's injured and the same thing with Lori, which I always thought, you know, cause there's all these little things in scream that relate to Halloween, but not Halloween too. And that's, that's one of them for sure. I mean, I would think so. Yeah. I mean, Kevin Williamson's a fantastic writer of, of adding stuff that he loves without, you know, uh, even though, I think Tarantino is one of uh, like a god of filmmaking. Tarantino just does it blatantly. Yeah. Williamson is able to like filter things into his movies, you know, of course with Wes doing it, but you know, is able to kind of make little nods like that that I think are very meaningful and better than, you know, kind of what we have these days where it's like, "Hey, look. I <laughs> Do like you remember Carpenter. this." Wait, <laughs> uh, yeah, look. Look at my homage here. That's good. You like it? I like Halloween. You can't tell, you know, and, and it's really subtle in Williamson and some other filmmakers too. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot less self-congratulation going on. Loomis does shoot Michael again several more times and Michael <laughs> does fall to the ground. Uh, Marion goes to call for help on the Marshall's radio, but when the Marshall leans down to check on Michael, he gets a scalpel across the throat for his trouble um, again, very deliberate. This is a very slow scene for, for him to really like they show you it dragged across his throat. Very deliberate, very effective. Uh, and again, just showing that that dogged pursuit, that relentlessness that Michael has. You know, it's literally he wakes back up. He's just been shot. First thing he does, grab a weapon, kill a guy. Loomis and Laurie flee as Michael pursues. And there's a few seconds here where it's just black. It really creates this blind panic. It's a cool little touch. 
and they prepare their last stand where Lori takes the Marshall's gun and Loomis uh, doesn't realize he's out of ammo. So when he tries to blow Michael's head off, there's just some clicks and then he gets stabbed in the gut. This is again, another moment where it's, it's a rug pull. It feels really great where you, you you're like, this is it. They're going to get him. And then something goes wrong in, in a way that uh, feels like it, it makes sense. Nothing. None of these rug pulls feel like they're like, uh, crap, we got to string out this movie for a little longer. Like we just saw Loomis fire six shots into him again. Six uh, more. Yeah. Six more. I shot him 12 times. <laughs> That's what he should have said. He should have said that once before the movie ended. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's great. Michael approaches Lori. He does hesitate when she calls out to him, but continues ultimately until Lori shoots him twice. Once in each eye, incredible marksmanship. He cries those bloody tears that we love so much. Uh, why, Laurie? Why did you shoot me? I just wanted you know, a hug. The thing is, the, the blood does represent the tears of him not getting what he wants. Yeah. You know? And they did this by straight up just putting a bulb of blood in the forehead of the mask. So when he reaches up, he crushes it and the blood comes out. Easy as you like. Nice little, uh, nice yeah. little effect. He swings wildly with this uh, this blade that he has, the the scalpel, while Loomis and Laurie fill the room with flammable gas. And Laurie runs out at Loomis's behest as he sacrifices himself, saying, it's time, Michael, and ignites his lighter, causing a huge ass explosion, much bigger than even they expected on set. <laughs> they said that it shook the soundstage and everything. Um, and and uh, Jamie Lee Curtis was not supposed to fall, but the explosion kind of threw her a little bit. I, I, you know, you love to see this. It's a great pyrotechnic effect, especially when Michael still walks out completely ablaze before finally collapsing a dozen or so feet from Lori. You know, that's actually Dick Warlock in there, which is awesome as well. Uh, you know, the benefit of a stunt person actor. I, I just think it's such a fun, fun stunt to really go out on this huge spectacle. Yeah, and I also, I, I love, and you mentioned it, I love the line of it's time, Michael. It's not like, it's nothing quippy. It's nothing as a callback. It's literally like, this is what we've been waiting. This is what it, we've been waiting for. Yeah, it's all you been know, leading here. Loomis has been prepared for this. Like, he expected this, you know? Like, this is what he has been dreading all this time. And it's such a cool fucking line to say it's time, Michael, not like gotcha, you know, <laughs> or let's blow this joint or I'll see you in hell. Nothing. It's just, it's time. Like it's time for you to go to go to sleep. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I agree. I, I love that line. I think that Donald Pleasance is really, he makes the character of Loomis his own in such a great way, you know, like we said, everyone comments on these great over-the-top lines, but they really are fantastic and memorable and unique. And the fact that he is able to have these, you know, I, I shot him six times, and then I also, shot him in the heart. <laughs> and then Lewis still- has some good fucking aim if he's drilling six bullets into a dude's heart. <laughs> yeah. We need to really know what Michael was doing if he's able to get up with getting shot in the chest, right. heart area six times but you know loomis fucking misses like a bitch in halloween <laughs> in halloween four at the gas station is it is it part four no it's part five right yeah i think so where they're at the gas station he just like 
just shoots <laughs> everywhere. Michael busts out with a fucking vehicle. But yeah, come you on. Lo- you know, hey, there's a lot of years between two and between two and five. So you lost some of that I accuracy. Mean, yeah, he got injured. He's got his face all burned up. Maybe he's a little <laughs> blind. But man, fucking, you know, we talk about where uh, Michael got his driving lessons. We need to talk about where Luke <laughs> got his marksmanship. Gosh. There's actually a shooting range at the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> And plus how he gets that seven shot off in a fucking six shooter. He always keeps one in the chamber. (laughs) Yeah. He's got like that single shot fucking pistol that Ken Foray is going to shoot himself with in fucking Dawn of the Dead. (laughs) A sneaky little belt derringer. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Michael, he sits there. He's he's burning. You you get these great shots of the flames kind of licking at the mask. Ten deaths so far accounted for, as the cops say. Although between the first and the second movies, there are actually 13 human deaths uh, as Laurie is transferred to another hospital, having survived once again. And Mr. Sandman plays us out as Laurie stares into space, seeing the flames licking at the mask once again in her mind as we fade out. Great, great movie. Uh, we love to see it, folks. You know, 13 deaths and two dogs. <laughs> Fucking Michael killing dogs. So it's unbelievable. No one else does that. Yeah, you know, that's the thing is that, uh, you know, I guess there's a dream. The, the people call it the dream sequence in Friday the 13th Part 2. But Jason didn't kill any animals. That's right. And that motherfucker lived in the woods. <laughs> he ate people. I mean, you even see Gordon... Gordon jumps out a damn window and Jason is still like, no, that's, that's yeah, not my bag. Like, no, I like dogs, <laughs> you know, but yeah, it's, I think, cause I think it's also in, in part, no, it's a part three that you, you don't see it, but you hear that Jason is actually a cannibal. Cause they talk about the, the cannibalistic, like eating the bodies at the camp. And it's like, damn, dude! But why is Michael got to fucking kill dogs and eat? He eats one. Yeah, that first that first dog gets chowed on. He got hungry. Man, what the fuck? And then he kills the fucking uh, German Shepherd. Well, come on, man. Fucked up, Michael. Yeah, I, I mean, kill a cat, not a dog. I know, I, <laughs> Don't I'm listen to him, like, Stevie. Just, you're gonna have like a, this outrage on your fucking <laughs> podcast now because I said kill cats. <laughs> Uh, that's all right my my producer uh stevie is a cat and so uh she 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 said that it's it's okay you gotta pass here uh, <laughs> i love all animals it's just uh, right as we discuss this i have i have three dogs surrounding me sure man i get it hey listen i don't want i don't want dogs killed either <laughs> and now brad we've reached the point of the show where we sum up why halloween 2 is not just a good horror movie but is in fact the best horror movie ever made and i'm gonna let you kick things off best horror film is that what we were doing um yeah it, it def- I, I i would consider halloween 2 to be one of the best sequels uh kind of up there with texas chainsaw massacre 2 but i think it has it, it takes everything that a first film established and amplifies it even if the first one was treading new ground uh did something new i think this one amplified all of that bigger body count, better music, better setting, you know, elaborates on kind of the killer. It does everything a sequel should do. And, you know, in return, it is an amazing sequel and it is one of my favorites. And I will probably pick it over, even though I think Halloween is a better movie in a roundabout way. Halloween two is something that I want in a sequel. It is that T2 
where it takes all the cool things that happened in the first one, but makes it so much bigger, you know, obviously on a small budget, of course. Right. But you know, there, there is, there's just so many elements to Halloween two of, of why. And I mean, we obviously went through it quite a bit, um, actually dissected it quite a bit. Yeah. Hey, to me, Halloween two is the best horror movie ever made because I think that it takes Michael from the periphery and really lets us see him operate. It makes him more of a central character, understanding that we want to see Laurie and Michael, and we want to understand why Loomis is so desperate to get him contained. And I think that Rick Rosenthal really understood that. And the fact that he manages to take this script from someone who was admitted that he wasn't necessarily putting his all into it and really transform it into something special utilize his own influences from someone that I also love. I think that you see those brought in, you see his own unique blend of things. You see Halloween taken to a new level. And to me, that makes this the best horror movie ever made. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think, yeah, if, if you, if you break it down, like we did, there's so much going for this movie, but you know, as, a, as if you just walk watch it as a sequel, maybe not. But I think there's, you know, breaking it down and dissecting it. I think you really do have something special. And it's yeah. just sad that it's kind of overlooked in a way. And it's dismissed as a Halloween sequel and not something. And it happens in the same fucking night. <laughs> I mean, it's a it's one movie for Christ's sakes. Hell yeah. It's this you is know? the new Kill Bill. Everyone and you gotta watch them together. You actually get to fucking say that in a movie. You know, it's always like week later, years later. You know, it's literally, it's this, it's a, it's a second, (laughs) it's a second later. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Brad, I want to thank you so much for coming on, man. This was such a fun time and I want to make sure that uh, you get a chance to plug all your stuff because it's all fantastic and I encourage people to check it out. So uh, please tell them where they can find you. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Brad F. Henderson and I just talk about whatever I want and whatever I like. Listen to the rest of these episodes on this podcast. Listen to other podcasts, read articles from all your favorite writers and new writers. Look at Vinegar Syndrome, look at Severin. You know, there's just support physical media. Yeah, there's just so much cool shit out there, man. I, you know, just be nice and listen to people and see what they're doing, and you're bound to catch some cool shit. Hell yeah. Can't can't uh, can't get any any better than that, folks. And uh, as far as my plugs, you can uh, find me at Little Horror PHL on Twitter. And uh, there's been a big shakeup on the Patreon recently. Uh, I decided that I hate advertising, and so now uh, there is no ad free tier anymore, which means that the five dollar tier just also gets the bonus episodes. So if you were like eight dollars, that's too rich for my blood. Now you can sign up at five dollars and still get the bonus episodes and everything and uh isn't that great so check that out there and um tell a friend if you're enjoying the show and uh yeah i mean that's pretty much it i also go check out a regional horror film and uh and watch something shot on video that's my real plug at the end of this Um, r.i.p my shot on video podcast oh man r.i.p indeed (laughs) (laughs) uh thanks again brad bye everyone see ya